I've got three scripture readings that are related to the rest of the message, but I'm only going to make a couple of brief comments about the three scripture readings, so you're going to have to listen closely and put your thinking caps on if you're interested in understanding how these connect. And this is really a conclusion of the series that we've been um, on over the last five weeks, I guess it was supposed to be three, thought maybe four, turned out to be five. And it is really just talking about what Jesus' life has to teach us about how to engage people of other nations, of other religious movements, and of people who are despised. So let's pray. Helen will read some scripture for us. So Father, Heavenly Father, Gracious Father, Lord Jesus, our King, our Messiah, our Savior, and Holy Spirit, our Advocate, our Comforter, the one who enlightens our hearts and minds. Thank you for this night. Thank you for the things that you've done through this series. Thank you for redeeming our lives. Thank you for giving your life for ours to be redeemed, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus, so much. Let our, let our minds be still, let our hearts be still. Just focus on you. Things that you are doing, the things that you have done, the things that you will do. <clears throat> Help us, Lord Jesus, to focus our desires on bringing glory to you by the things that we say, by the things that we do. And we would live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. The calling that we have received to be imitators of you, Jesus. To be imitators of you, Heavenly Father, to be imitators of you, Holy Spirit. We praise you, we thank you again for this high calling that you've given us. Let us not take it with any flippancy whatsoever, but with seriousness. Praise you that, that you would infuse us with joy in this journey. We love you. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, John 19, 34, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Three texts that are extremely closely connected. <coughs> Start off with Ezekiel 47. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, where the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went, as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the waters that was water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was up to the waist. 
He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on the side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah, and where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish. Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from the En Gedi to En Elgin. There were places, there will be places for the spreading of nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh, they will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water that flows from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. John 19.34 One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down to the middle of the great sea, the great street of the city. On each side of the river, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord their God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This river that starts off as a trickle, as Ezekiel sees it, becomes a river. A river so deep you can't cross it. A river that gives life to everything, including the Dead Sea. A trickle that is fulfilled in Jesus being pierced in his side. And a sudden flow of blood and water pouring out. A river that is not just for any healing, but for the healing of the nations. Mind you, not for the destruction of the nations, but for the healing of the nations. For the last five weeks, we've been talking about engaging 
despised people, people of other nations, people of other religions, and I'm not trying to say that everybody of another religion or another nation is despised, but unfortunately we seem to be living in a time when that is growing the case. We've been talking about the marginalized, the misfits, the outcasts, we have gone over and briefed the history of Israel from Exodus to Jesus. We've discussed Jesus' encounter with a doubly despised Samaritan woman at a well. And Jesus' profound example of a religious leader questioning him on eternal life. And Jesus giving an example of a, to that religious leader a filthy Samaritan who seemed to be able to love his neighbor as himself profoundly by being a neighbor. And last week we talked about Jesus' encounter with a bold Canaanite. I think most of you were there for that message. Quite honestly, it was probably one of the most challenging and one of the favorite things that I've ever had the privilege of proclaiming in all of my life and all my years of, of preaching. It's profound to think about what Jesus has done in coming to bring healing to a nation of people who were despised in the Old Testament. His willingness to love her, care for her, heal her daughter, that she had great faith. I mean, it's, it's amazing. This week I was reading, I'm reading a a Lent devotional uh, by Walter Brueggemann. And uh, Patty, I know, is, is reading it as well. I know Mitch, I think, is reading it. Jennifer um, Pauly, you know, some of you know her. She's been reading it apparently as well. And probably a bunch of other people I know in addition. But I could not <laughs> believe last, it was Wednesdays or Thursdays? Thursdays. Thursdays uh, devotion. It was probably the single best summary of the last four weeks that I could have ever thought to read. I was blown away by it. If somebody would have read that devotional after hearing the messages they gathered, they would have thought something, there was a connection. Uh, blew me away. I mean, just about everything we've talked about over this last four weeks. It's not, it's not like I'm still on Brueggemann's devotional books. But if you're interested in reading it, I'll, I'll hand it, I'll give it, I'll let, I'll let you read it. It's, it is... My goodness, it was it was amazing. You should have told us about it before yeah, lunch started. I didn't even know about it until after lunch started. I had to get caught up. I actually bought it like just last week, and then read read up. I know it's crazy, but it's not too late. There's still over what, probably forty about days left in lunch. It's close, not quite. So just go ahead and buy it. It's good. How did you spell so, the last name somebody asked? Um, let's see. B R U E G G E M A N N. Yeah. So today, today I want to close this series discussing contemporary ideas concerning how we think about other world religions in relation to Christianity. Some of you may be familiar with some of what I'm going to talk about, because I'm drawing heavily on, on, on one particular person that has been very influential in my life on this subject. However, there is some significant variation. I'll throw that out there as well. 
His name is Leslie Newbigin. I know at least one of you here knows of him because he's reading this particular book. Is anybody else familiar with Leslie Newbigin? Yeah. He's a pretty amazing guy. Um, missionary, India. Anyway, he's got some really, really helpful things to share with us concerning how we are to engage people of other religious movements and other nations. There's no way I can cover everything he has to say in the book, but I want to cover these three things that he throws out that I think are super, super helpful. It's commonly classified the relationship of Christianity to the world, to world religions, in one of three different ways. Pluralist, the exclusivist, and the inclusivist. Did you catch that? Pluralist, exclusivist, and inclusivist. You got it. The pluralist view, I'll define it in brief, claims that Christianity is one way to God, but that all religions are sufficient vehicles of salvation. Not necessarily are the pluralists, universalists, although some pluralists are universalists, that everybody will end up being saved at the end of the day. But nonetheless, all religions, they would argue, are good vessels to get them saved. Huh? I, we'll talk more about this. So that's the pluralist view. It's like all roads lead to, to heaven. All, all, all ways can get you saved. And kind of the exact opposite of that would be the exclusivist view. That maybe many of you are super familiar with says something like this: All who do not knowingly and outwardly accept Jesus as Savior and Savior and Lord are without question not saved. Like it's kind of a weird way of putting it, right? Because sometimes people will say some variation of that that like Jesus is the way. That's not exactly the exclusivist view. The exclusivist view is really more focused on who's not saved. Like, Jesus is the way, so therefore, therefore, if you don't have a connection that you know of with Jesus, you're certainly not. Some exclusivists would want to argue with me on that. And then there's the inclusivist view. The inclusivist view upholds that Christ is acknowledged as the only way to be saved, but affirms that his saving work extends beyond the visible church. Does that make sense? So the inclusivist view would simply say, there is one way through a relationship with the Father and through Jesus, but how that actually works out, what it looks like, is sometimes beyond us. Okay? If I'm going to tell you where I am, which I don't always do this, I have some problems with that last view, but I'm closest to that person. Okay? We'll talk about this more. Each of these common understandings of Christianity's relationship to world religions has its strengths and has its weaknesses. Some people would say, well, there's no, how could there possibly be a strength in this pluralist view? Well, there's a, there's a strength that we can throw out there for being realistic about this. For example, Pluralism opens the door for a great dialogue between religions. We don't have to be offended with one another. We can just talk. No, you're good. I'm good. Let's talk. Right? Like, that's actually something worth noting. Because we're, with, 
Well, the world is so filled with wars over religion. There's something to be offered in that pluralistic worldview. It just says, I'm okay, you're okay. Of course, it also leaves numerous problems, one of which I'll throw out. Allows the individual to choose from a smorgasbord of competing theological concepts, pretending as though they are compatible. It's a lot of times different religions, different theological ideas just have no compatibility to them. Like, God is just some off distant force that we can't know, versus, no, He's very personally involved with us. Right? So, typically, this smorgasbord approach to religion ends up with a choosing of a path of least resistance. What I mean is, people will typically say, well, what then is the easiest way to be saved? If it sounds too hard, like, for example, the cross, that is, self-sacrificial way of love, extending love to both friend and enemy, that sounds like really hard, and like it might be killed, then, okay, don't worry about that. Just leave that part aside, choose something else in the smorgasbord of we're all good. Choose to do that instead, and it's, it's fine. The reality is, within that worldview, boiling all things down to the same thing ends up rendering everything nothing. Everything's just the same, but it doesn't really matter. And everything's pretty much nonsense anyway. I would love to really just spend a ton of time, and you might might not, um, just going over every last little detail about these three views, right? But I, I don't have time to do that, and I would probably bore some of you to death, other than you would absolutely love it. Instead of going into the specifics of each of these views, I would, I guess in this moment, prefer to discuss one troublesome thing that actually all three of these have in common. Maybe you want to take a stab at what the problem is with all three of these? I don't want uh, maybe, do anybody want to take a stab at what's wrong with really all three of these views? What's that? Making your mind up. Making your mind up, yeah. They all presume to know what. They all presume to know how God works. Well, absolutely, you're getting really close. Each of, each of these three, pluralism, exclusivism, and inclusivism, begins with some variation of the same troubling question. Religion. Who is and who isn't saved? And then it tries to determine an answer to that question. I mean, it seems like who is saved is a reasonable question at first. And I'm not saying that this is not a question to be discussed. What I'm saying is that if this question of who is and who isn't saved is the starting point in determining the relationship between Christianity and other world religions, then our discussion of the topic will almost certainly go awry really quickly. We'll talk about why. I mean, still, some of you might be saying, why? Why? Isn't that what this, this is all about? Isn't that the point of this salvation stuff, where we go and what becomes of us after death, and who's in and who's out, and whether or not we end up in a good place or a bad place? Isn't that... Well, let's talk about that. One problem with the question of who is in and who is out that is true in every one of these situations is that at least half of the question is trying to answer something that we can't know. 
We are not determiners of the final fate of another person. Today's Christianity's relationship to other, to other religions on this question then is to, on the outset, try and make determinations that are not ours to make. This is where I will line up in some aspects with this inclusivist view that says Jesus is the way, but I have no idea exactly the ways in which that God could make what Jesus has done effective in the life of somebody. I don't know that. None of us know that. Sometimes people will look at things like Romans 10, 8 through 10. Formulas of salvation, right? I'll read it for you. Actually, I'm going to read 5 through 10. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things lives by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will descend, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word, is in, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and, riches, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This text is all about the assurance of salvation of the one who confesses and who calls on the name of the Lord. It's about the assurance of the one who is doing so, right? That's what Paul is talking about here. If you're confessing Jesus is your Lord and Savior... And we can start nitpicking on that a little bit as well. Like, are you actually following up on what you confess with your lip and say you believe in your heart? But if that's what you're doing, then you can be assured. You can find peace in knowing that you are embraced by this God who is full of graciousness with you. However, what it doesn't say is that everyone that does not call on the name of the Lord will not be saved. We can't make it say that. A lot of people want to try and make it say that. I don't know why. It's like, because we, I don't know why. It's crazy to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's, sorry, it's not what Paul is saying here. He is simply saying, if you, oh my goodness, if, if you're struggling, if you're wondering, if you're in or out, or what's going on in your life, if you just doubt whether or not you have the strength and the faith to be accepted as one of God's covenant people, he's saying, my goodness, brothers and sisters, if you're confessing that with your mouth, you are. It's okay. But he's also saying, he's actually also saying, keep that in mind for the person sitting next to you. Keep that in mind for the person sitting next to you. Jew and Gentile alike, they confess faith in Christ Jesus. Assure them. But that's not an assurance on the flip side. We can't, we can't turn it into that. As hard as people seem to want to try, we can't turn it into that. As a matter of fact, if anything, right there in the text, it's open to interpretation of which most scripture is, right? But if anything, it's most likely telling us to absolutely not do that. Do not say in your heart. Keep in mind, do not say in your heart. Who will ascend into heaven or who will descend to the deep? Just rest assured in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Again, this text is about the assurance of salvation. It does not say, does not give us the right to think that we know the heart of another person, what God is currently doing in their lives, or what God is going to do in their lives in the future. Basic Christian theology, rooted straight away in the name of God as he revealed in the Old Testament, has to embrace that God is going to do what God is going to do. He is going to have mercy on whom he is going to have mercy. He is who he is, and we ain't him. Okay? I know that maybe for some of you this is hard, because if we want to proclaim with conviction salvation in Christ Jesus, we want to be like actually thinking we're offering something that you can't find anyplace else. Well, we still are. We still are. We're just naming that we're trying to bring people into this community in which they find peace and love and hope and joy and a gracious walking with our Savior and our Lord. Again, I'll go back to the inclusivist view. Not liking the question that it starts with, but I definitely appreciate the perspective that would say Jesus is the one who's died for the sin of the world, but how God makes effective his work in the lives of people may not be visible to us. Another problem is that focusing on simply being saved in some future sort of way undermines the existence of a person in history. Focusing on the eschatological, the future component of salvation fails to take into consideration living in the kingdom of God today. Because you are like a person living in a time and living in a space and you've got a body and you were created all at once. Scott didn't have like some spirit thing floating off in the distance someplace before he became Scott. Scott was known in that God knew he was going to make him. But he made them. Where were you born? 78. 78. What happens to Scott matters, right? Like what happens to Scott in this life? It, it matters. Actually, salvation comes to Scott today. Life comes to Scott today. It's not a matter of some eschatological future thing, getting people saved with some experience in the future, and I'm not trying to undermine that as a thing, right? I'm just simply saying that God's involvement in Scott's life is now, not just later, right? And that's, that is, a, if maybe we can blow the doors off of the idea of getting people saved, and, and that means then that your life changes now. I'm okay with talking about it in that kind of terminology. Because that's right. That's right and good. As a matter of fact, Paul and I have talked about this a lot before. You're technically a people who are being saved. We're in the process of being redeemed, of being restored, of being renewed. And we're on this journey with God. With his involvement in our lives. Giving us 
hope and change in us. I mean, some of our some of our best and some of our worst theology comes through music. Contemporary music is riddled with probably as much bad theology as it is a good theology. But there's a song that some of you might know by Switchfoot. And, and it just says, I'm ready now, I'm ready now, I'm not waiting for the afterlife. In other words, we're ready to do this thing with God now. We're ready to have a life changed now. We're ready to find some peace and some joy and some hope and some purpose and meaning for our lives, some freedom in our lives now. And I, and, I, and I know that death still has its way, disease still has its way, hardship still has its way, injustice still happens. So we still look to that thing that's going to happen in the future. But we don't forsake today. We are called to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. We are called to, to, do, just, to do justly, to love mercy to walk humbly with our God. <laughs> the third issue is related to who's in and who's out and our relationship as Christians with religions of the world. Is that it unfortunately focuses way too much on you and me. Right? We have somehow twisted Christianity in this time in our history, probably due to some philosophical ideas around existentialism, if you're interested in those kinds of topics, to simply being an individual that's being saved. That's what God is up to. It's just about you and me. God loves me, and I'm not sure about you, but I know he loves me, and it's all about me and me. When in reality, what we are supposed to be is a community of people that are, as individuals, but collectively as a community, giving glory to God. It's not about you and me, but glory giving to God. Jesus actually goes so far as to say this crazy, audacious thing. It's just crazy what he says. It doesn't even make any sense, and it makes me mad every time I read it. Not really, it used to. And it came to the point of hopefully understanding it. It didn't bug me so much, but I'll tell you the first thousand times I read it, my 20s sure to anger me. If you want to save your own life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you will save it. What? How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? If you want to save your life, you lose it. If you want to lose it, what? Does that, does that make sense? It does. It does make sense, but it just doesn't make obvious sense. In other words, a life of selfish self-preservation is not the way. A life that's just simply concerned with you, even when it relates to salvation, is not the way. When we come before God and just say, Ha, I give up. I die to myself. I don't want to do what my heart wants to do. I want to do what you want to do. And I want to serve you and serve people. And I don't know what's going to come of me at the end of all of this. 
I want to do that. And God says to us, oh, I think maybe you'll find some light there. He wants to get us out of ourselves. We're so good at turning in on ourselves. So much so that, again, the gospel has unfortunately been turned into this thing that's turned down on itself. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has never seemed to be super crazy when he's asked, Oh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is one of the reasons that he's not crazy about that question, because it's me, 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 me. It's like my, like Luca when he was four years old. Like me, 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 right? It's that kind of maturity that asks that question. And that's okay, because we have to be four-year-olds sometimes. All right? That's part of the journey. That's part of the journey. It's okay that sometimes we're there and we're saying, God, what must I do to be saved? And he says, well, stop focusing so much on yourself and serve me. And it'll be fine. Die to that kind of orientation. Because you know what? It is super, super hard to serve other people and to love other people when you're just constantly concerned about yourself. Right? Sooner or later, the day will come and you're not going to do it anymore. If it's self-seeking... And sooner or later, what it seems as though you're trying to get isn't going to be met. And you're going to done with that. Particularly as we get involved in the things that God is really up to in this world. Like bringing healing to the nation. Because the reality is, people that need, a, need healing, and we all need it, need healing because they're, they're wounded, they're broken. And as the cliche goes, hurt people hurt people. And so if you're helping hurting people for your own sake, sooner or later the hurt you're going to get in return is going to be too great, and you're just going to pay them. So hopefully at that juncture we can see that orienting ourselves to how we relate to world religions based on who's in and who's out is not helpful. It's not helpful. Because it's selfish. I'm in, you're out. I'm going to quote a bit now from, from Leslie. As Christians seeking to engage a pluralist world, because that really is where the bulk of our world is, and it doesn't matter what you think or who you worship. So as Christians seeking to engage a pluralist world, we must start not from the place of how to receive eternal life, but how to live life, period. We must not forsake the great reality made known to us in Jesus Christ, that God, the creator and sustainer of all that exists in his own triune being, an ocean of infinite love overflowing to all his works in all creation and to all human beings. I believe, he writes, that when we see Jesus really welcoming the signs of faith among men and women outside of the house of Israel, when we see him lovingly welcoming those cast out, when we see him on the cross, arms outstretched to embrace the world, and when we hear his voice whispering word, whispered words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. It is then that we are seeing the most fundamental 
of all realities. Namely, a God of grace and mercy and loving kindness who reaches out to every creature regardless of their nationality, regardless of their religion, regardless of their culture, regardless of their brokenness, regardless of their sin, actually because of it. Instead of trying to convince people of our certainty of our eternal life and their eternal death, of God's embrace of us and rejection of them, we should tell stories. We should just tell stories. Seriously. The story of Jesus Christ and the story of his inclusion of us is part of our story. Right? The story of you being invited into a kingdom where the king loves you so much that he's willing to die for you. And calls you to love so much that you're willing to die for others. I, goodness sakes, if there's any place that I've ever been, this church has as many stories of redemption as I have ever come across. For, for a little group of folks, I've never come across a place with this many stories. Amazing stories of God's redemption. Powerful stories of God's grace, God's loving kindness, His redemption. Powerful stories of people living in the place that I was talking about earlier that's in between that tension of like the horrific nature of the sinfulness in the world but the huge graciousness of God. Where He loves us. Holds us accountable but loves us. If there's some way to share the absolutely unique love of Christ and the saving work of Him on the cross that I would absolutely declare as the way. If we want to share that with people, we need to start going to sharing our stories with them. And Scott, you have an incredible story. Goodness, absolutely, a beautiful story. Every one of us here has a, an amazing story. I know a lot of your stories pick on Brandy because she's one of the people that's given me permission to tell her story and I told it on national radio a couple weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't uh, say her name. You know, Matt, this is, this, is, this is that, oh my goodness, where God involves us and draws us into his story of redemption that is so powerful where we can talk about the assurance of being included but it's not about the assurance of who is. So Brandy started coming to church we get some free food, basically, at our Thursday night meal, and it was over here still. And she had two little boys, she's a guy named Darren. They were clean, but had been struggling with substance abuse. Both of them relapsed. Fast forwarding the story a bit. And many in the community recognized what was going on. And so we, I ended up pulling her aside and saying, here's the deal, we love you very much, but we love you so much as to hold you accountable. There's accountability in love. 
and for the sake of her and for the sake of the children. We made sure that we knew we were going to hold her accountable, but that we cared about her immensely. At that moment, she actually pulled up her sleeves, the sleeves of her shirt, and the little track marks coming down her arms. And that was the moment. That was the moment for her. There was no conversation of, you're out, and you can be in if you get it together. But rather, it was a, you're part of God's story, and we want you all the more to be a part of God's story. We're a part of God's story, and He's gracious with us. It's that kind of thing that draws people to cross, that draws people to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. We have to remember that exactly how God works and who is out is an absolute mystery to us. Because how many, just in that one example of Brandy, how many how many places I've been in my life that would have just considered her out because of the life that she was living. And instead of seeking to bring her into the story, it was simply a matter of, it would simply be a matter of, of rejection rather than a drawing in. So what do we do from here then? How do you share your story? Have you ever like sat down and maybe wrote out your story? The story of the time in which God drew you to himself? Have you ever sought opportunities to share your story? And your story's ongoing, right? Sometimes we are met with tragedy, and my goodness, we end up with all that many more profound examples of God involving us in his stuff. I don't know. But maybe it starts with simple things like writing your story and sharing your story not focusing on trying to figure out who among us is out and who among us is in, but rather as people who would have the assurance of being God's covenant people, sharing that love and sharing our stories with those in this world that so desperately need a little bit of hope. Please have any thoughts, any questions, anything you want. This is the last time we'll talk about this from this in this context for a while, so I want to give Does anybody have any thoughts or questions? Find yourself to be a more of an exclusivist, inclusivist, pluralist. Take a nap. Yeah. How about the the, the passage? No one gets to the Father except by you. How does that work? Yeah. Well, I think it works in the same way that. Jesus is speaking there to his disciples. He's talking about him being the way, but he's not trying to offer them a way to know who of all is making that way through him. Like we have other situations where people that aren't known by Jesus are using, and known by the disciples seem to be using Jesus' name. Um, We have examples, obviously, of the Samaritan woman that we already talked about who the Canaanite woman as well, who he doesn't seem to reject or want to keep excluded. I think it works really well, actually, in that inclusivist 
way where we can find assurance to know that we can come to the Father through Him, but we're not trying to talk about how people make their way into that relationship with the Father. But it's going to happen through the work of Christ regardless. So it, the, the big theological term is not that big. I think I said it a couple of times, it would be efficacious. How, 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 if we want to look at it in a, in, a, in a Jesus died for us and shed his blood for us sort of way, if, if Jesus died for the sin of Scott and covered him in his blood, how God is going to cover somebody in his blood can be unknown to us. But still, Jesus has done it. He's still the one who has died for the sin. Somebody like, so let's ask some really hard questions. So like, what about somebody who dies at four years old, never having had an opportunity to even hear the gospel? What about somebody who dies at 12 years old and rejected the gospel because their parent, who was supposedly a Christian, abused them their entire lives, and now they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus? Is that person now lost for, for good because of the suffering that they endured? Sometimes, unfortunately, in the name of Jesus? Obviously not really, but like, what happens with that person? This is one of the reasons that this inclusivist view is really important to consider. You guys with me on that? I mean, we have to face some of that stuff. We have to face this, especially as the world is shrinking and we see more of what goes on in the world around us. And we hear stories about what happens. What does happen in the life of somebody who maybe is an old person, not as a 12 year old, who, 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 goes to, who, who dies of, of old age, if you will? And the only reason that they rejected the gospel is because the church that they were part of was abusive, spiritually abusive, hurtful people. Oh, and they never heard it. And never heard it, right? Absolutely. And we have some big things that we have to talk about when it comes to how God is going to ultimately again make efficacious the work of Jesus in the lives of, of people. Like, is that what we long for? Like we long to see people enter into this relationship in their lives when they're young even, right? Because of hopefully the joy and peace and the hope and the life that it brings to us. That's what we want, right? But the reality is some people don't have that experience. And Jesus himself, you know, kind of put it the way in the parable of us telling people that uh, you know, at the judgment, he, you know, he mentioned a specific, uh, what he said, you know, people uh, on that day, many would come to him and, and, you know, they would say, Lord, Lord, and he would say, you know, depart from me, I never knew you, and people would be like, well, well why? Because, you know, while I was in jail, you never came to visit me, I needed water, and you never gave me anything to drink, you never, I was cold, and you never gave me any clothes. He also talks about the flip side of that, about there would be other people, it would be like, he would say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me water. And they're like, I don't remember doing any of that. And they're like, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Right. And uh, it kind of indicates that, uh, yeah, we really actually really, really don't know how right. he's doing business. Right. And a good thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Although it's tragic when we pretend as though we do, right? If you're interested in reading more on like inclusivist view, although I wouldn't share some of the things that he has to, to say, Carl Rahner, or Rainer, I pronounce, want to pronounce his name, 
You don't know what the right way is? And I heard both. I don't know if maybe he doesn't know. I don't know. I don't know how to Michael, Michael, one of the other. <laughs> Carl Rahner, though, writes a lot about the inclusivist view. He makes some concessions that I'm not quite willing to make personally, but there are many others, though, out there that write on inclusivist view, dealing with pretty much every text out there, bringing some balance into how we are to understand it. You know, I just have to say that it would be great to spend tons of time talking about this with this all the time. We live in a, in a pluralist society, and one that is going to pretty easily just reject you to your face if you have an exclusivist view, uh, an, an, an obnoxious exclusivist view, one that would just simply say, in light of Jesus being the way, the way, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, God is involved in your life. Somebody that's going to say something like that, and that you're for sure... I'm positive that you're going to hell. Like, that's, that's a problem theological view, to say the least. What about, and I, and I, I don't know how much longer you guys want to talk, I can talk forever. Well, you have to stop and consider, too, like, what does where you're born have to say in all of this? You know? What if you were, what if you were born in a uh, Muslim family? Where would you be today? How many of you are Christians because you were born into a Christian family? And I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing at all. Have, have you, though, this is a dangerous thing to say, maybe, have you studied other religions, or are you just a Christian because that's where you grew up? You were born into it, and so that's who you are. If you haven't, why would you think somebody who is Muslim, or Buddhist, or Hindu, would do the same? Especially if you approach them and say, well, I'm positive you're out. Okay? <laughs> I don't, I don't know for sure what you're thinking, but I just know that you're not right. <laughs> you know, We can't have this view that still would want them to come to Jesus, right? It's, this isn't a matter of, of not sharing Christ with people, not at all. It's a matter of we want people to have the assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus. We do want that. We want that. We long for that. Because I, I see the transformation in people. I did see a couple of hands right here. Okay, this is off topic. Walter Brueggemann, A Way Other Than Their Own? Is that it? A Lent Devotional is what it's called. Well, yeah, it says that in the book. Yeah, they just wrote this year, 2017. It was $13 paperback on the inside. Yeah. That's Kindle. Paperback is for So, as you said, it's dangerous to talk about your different, different cultures, different. Well, as our as our testimony our, pertains to, you know, the way that it's taken, the way that someone hears your story, if they're ignoring, you know, if you know what I mean, uh, to where they haven't had a lot of life experience, and they hear those things, aren't they tempted or feel less? Or I don't. I've seen danger in it. I've seen danger in it. How do we discern? So, so is that a little bit more danger in sharing your story, or danger in danger in sharing your story? Right, yeah. Like, like the danger of being rejected and the danger of being not sacrificial, but I mean to them. To them. Yeah. No, no, I'm not entirely following you. Give me just a little more going. Okay, like uh, uh, it, it's okay to live a normal uh, normal life where you haven't experienced uh, drugs and alcohol or abuse or anything like that. It's all it's okay. It doesn't make less than you know, to where it's made people kind of uh, Okay, I'm 
Well, I don't know. I've seen sometimes it's not what he is. Sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely not needed discernment. And that's what part of the story you want to share with any individual, right? Like, we were talking in Bible study a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night about how sometimes we present the gospel as, as we are sinners saved by grace, and there's an appropriate measure of doing that, right, when we share our stories with Like, I have a powerful testimony in my own life about that moment of coming to realize that Jesus has saved me from my, from my sinfulness. And at the same time, that's not the only avenue into the gospel, because that itself is not the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom of God is here, that Jesus has lived, died, was resurrected, and is coming again. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And so it may very well not start with this notion of we are sinners saved by grace. Sometimes it does because oftentimes we're dealing with people that are really broken. But sometimes we need to start off by recognizing what's going on that's good in somebody's life. Like, I see you loving your, your children. Tell me about why you love your kids so much. Because it's pretty impressive to see how much you love your kids. Right? That's an avenue of the gospel. Yeah. 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 Help us to not be an arrogant people. 
but a humble people. Help us to bring glory to you, knowing that you are the God of, of this entire world, this whole cosmos. That every person on the face of this earth, despite the tone of their skin, or the place that they were born, was fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being so merciful to us and so good to us. Help us to tell our stories well. Thank you that you have involved, you have involved us in your story. We love you. Amen.